Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So on this episode of the show, we're continuing our discussions about diversity and the job hunt with our wonderful colleagues at VetCan, um, as the career network folks, um, career counselors at our institutions. So can't wait to dive back into this. And today we're talking a bit about disability and the job hunt. Now, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, of oh, close to 20% of Americans have a disability and about 13% of all Americans, their disabilities are classified as severe. So that leaves about 7% that are folks that are pretty, you know, moderately to high functioning. And those are folks that are very much in the workforce across the board, right? And so in all different kinds of sectors, you'll find folks with visible and invisible disabilities. So specifically among veterinary populations, my study and my work has focused primarily on students, faculty, and staff. And in a study that we did in 2017 related to climate and demographics within the colleges, we found that about about 11 to 12% of our student population identify as having a disability, most notably primarily at invisible neurocognitive conditions, things like ADHD, ADHD, dyslexia, dyscalculia, all of those kinds of things that folks are, their brains work differently, right? And so some folks actually will say that those are things that might seem to be barriers for some and they lean into strengths um, for others. Similarly, we see a, a kind of same kind of percentage among our faculty and staff identifying as having a disability, about 11% of those individuals. But interestingly, we hear that, or sorry about the pun, that loss of hearing actually seems to be the most common disability among our faculty as they self-identify. We're seeing more students with visible and invisible disabilities applying to veterinary school, gaining admittance, successfully completing their programs, and going on to really fulfilling careers. So we've seen students who are deaf, we're, we're seeing students who are in wheelchairs, we're seeing students with chronic illnesses that limit their types of the types of practice that they may be able to go into professionally, but they're go, coming into vet school and they're thriving and they're going on to great careers that really kind of are able that that allow them to really kind of show all the things that they can contribute to the veterinary profession. We actually did a show recently on physical disabilities in veterinary medicine. That's episode 58. So be sure to go back into your podcast feed and take a listen to that show. So to talk about how to navigate the job hunt with a disability, whether you are going to be a new graduate, you're looking for a job now as a fourth year, a new graduate, or someone who is um, just looking to kind of move within the sector, I'm really excited about today's show because we're going to be talking talking about all of that kind of stuff. I'm happy to welcome Jenna Grant from the Ohio State University to the show. Welcome. 
Thank you. Happy to be here. Great. Wonderful. So Jenna is going to talk to us about some do's and don'ts and all kinds of things that we're going to talk about, about how to still sell yourself and how things that maybe employers can do to also welcome and be more inclusive of folks with varying kinds of disabilities. So with that, I'm going to ask Jenna to do what we always do on the show and introduce herself. Great. So my name is Jenna Grant. I use she, her, and hers pronouns. And I have been at uh, the Ohio State College of Veterinary Medicine for about six months now. Prior A to newbie. That, I know, a new. It feels like it's gone by fast. Love it. So incredibly fulfilling and challenging. And learning a lot about veterinary students because that isn't my background. Got my master's about six months ago in higher education and student affairs from Ohio State. And prior to that, got my bachelor's degree in women's and gender studies and psychology. So, you know, the idea of student well-being and functioning and sort of how they succeed or struggle in both the college environment and after in professional school has always been something that I've been very passionate about. And I find I'm able to incorporate all of my education into what I do now as a career counselor. Awesome. Well, great. So welcome. Welcome to the veterinary community. Thank you. (laughs) Put up your feet, stay a while. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't we drive right on in, Jenna? Um, So excuse me, over the years, we've seen a number of different kinds of disabled students successfully matriculating in our DVM program, certainly in the U.S. and abroad. What can you tell us maybe a little bit about how they're faring in the market? And of course, right now, you know, it's a, it's a job seekers market, right? Yes, very much. So yeah, how are, how are these folks doing? It really depends. The thing is, is we really don't have a lot of data on this per se. In general, there isn't, there's a lack of data on how individuals do, individuals who maybe, you know, self-disclosed disability in college or got accommodations, how they're doing in the workforce, let alone how they're doing in veterinary medicine. Mm -hmm. So really what we know personally in our office is what we have learned anecdotally from talking to students. And it's, it's been mixed, truly. We had one DVM who uh, started having issues with carpal tunnel. Uh, and he was accommodated in his workplace, which was fantastic. And he got it in his contract to have some accommodations. So that's oh, a success story there. At the same time, though, we had a student who uh, went into an anesthesia residency, actually ended up being, unfortunately, allergic to something that was used in that. And so after pursuing not only her DVM, but years and years and spending lots of money on pursuing a specialty, she had to leave that specialty, and now she works in a different career path. She works in veterinary publication. Mm. Another one we know, uh, we actually had a little person who successfully matriculated through our program, and she had a tough time, unfortunately, finding work. And then once she found work, she did not. She was not retained in the job she ultimately had mm. uh, because they just didn't accommodate her like they needed to. So. We, we hear some mixed things, unfortunately, yeah. but we definitely would like to know more about how our students are faring. 
So if someone out there, higher ed folks, want to do a study, here's a study for you. <laughs> but I mean, I think that, that, you know, before we actually got on air, we were kind of talking a little bit about how little data there really is about how folks with disabilities are kind of navigating this space. We see a lot of kind of public service announcements about hiring and getting giving opportunities to folks with disabilities. We know that there's the Americans with Disabilities Act and certainly globally there are other laws and, and things like that on the books in other countries to kind of also offer those kinds of protections. But, but the reality is that sometimes there's still a lot of limitations, it seems. Right. Some of it is kind of, some of it, you know, it, you know, it might be packaged as safety issues and some of it might be packaged as all kinds of things. But the, the, the tough realization is we're living in a pretty ableist <laughs> environment. Extremely. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So some disabilities are really readily apparent. They're pretty obvious, right? And so there are some things that like you mentioned, like the veterinarian who was a little person. And certainly we know that there are veterinarians who are out there in wheelchairs. We also have to recognize too that for those of us who are able-bodied, this is not promised to us, right? <laughs> that could change on a dime. And so for individuals who are job hunting and have an obvious disability resulting in you know, different levels of impairment or mobility or whatever, what kind of advice can you share for those folks who are kind of navigating the job hunt? Sure. So as you said before, the job market is great for students right now. We actually are in highly, highly encouraging employers to start making connections with students from day one, you know, building relationships early on in their veterinary career. And so I say that because something that we encourage is, especially when you have a disability, connection building is so essential because if you build connections early on in your career, then you have all of these early on opportunities to demonstrate your abilities, your competency, and build those relationships so that ultimately when you are seeking a job, leaving your fourth year, hopefully you will have built those relationships. So maybe those individuals will want you to come work for them or they can vouch for you mm. uh, to other employers. So that way, when you go into a new situation, even if it's not with any employer that you've worked with in the past, you know, they're able to speak to your abilities. And that's just one way to sort of subvert any of those feelings or thoughts that a new employer may be having because they have a lack of understanding about the disability or they have a bias in some mm -hmm. way. So that's just one thing uh, that, that we recommend doing or one thing that can help facilitate sure. is your job search. So network, network, network. Network, network, network. Important for everybody, but I think especially um, those individuals. So, and you mentioned earlier the student or the, the recent grad with Carpal Tunnel getting accommodations in their contract. So that requires disclosure. Yes. <laughs> um, and we're going to talk a bit about some of the invisible disabilities, but that, but, you know, Carpal Tunnel is not, is one that is fairly invisible if you're, if you, you don't know, right? As, right? as someone who's had pretty severe Carpal Tunnel myself and had surgery as a result, like, you know, it's not obvious to folks, but you, you mentioned that the accommodations were embedded into the contract. So how does that conversation kind of go? 
So I didn't work with this particular student. I will talk about it a little bit later, but although carpal tunnel is invisible, it's still medical and persistent enough that I think it's much more accepted. And so in addition, I think he he asked for accommodations. There's a particular tool or something. Mm -hmm. I don't quite know what it was, but something he was able to use to help facilitate his work. So I think the fact that that thing already existed and he knew to ask for it helped to facilitate him getting those accommodations. Got it. Um, okay. Because one of the barriers, I think, to getting accommodations is just a lack of knowledge on both the job seeker and the employer's part, where the job seeker really has to advocate for themselves, which is unfair sometimes yeah. because the employer should do some of the work as well. But mm-hmm. sometimes the, you know, this the person only knows what they need accommodated, but they don't know what's out there or possible for accommodations. And the employer doesn't know either. So I think in this particular case, this student knew that there was something that he could ask for in his contract to accommodate him. And so I think that was a big part of him getting that accommodation. That accommodation. He had something concrete to point to that he could say, this is what I need to do my best work. And this is something you can get. Sure, sure. All right. So, so again, those the the issues around kind of invisible disabilities. You know, the percentage of students that are self-disclosing in surveys or after they have an offer, a, um, an offer of admissions, then they're going to, you know, the ADA offices, um, offices of American, you know, disabilities on sure. campus, looking to figure out how they're going to navigate the next four years. And, and again. As I mentioned at the top of the show, a lot of these students have neurocognitive differences, which we know that the it, there's a whole debate about whether or not there's more people with these differences, or are we just now no? Do we know more about them, and are we just you know, yeah, really diagnosing them in in ways? But we've we've seen that that the percentage have risen of these individuals has risen, has risen pretty sharply over the years. These folks kind of largely move in, in silence a lot of times. Do you know of, of folks that are, how are these folks doing in the job search or are they just kind of invisible like everyone else? So similarly, but almost even more so mm-hmm. than the first question is we just don't know ex- except for what we have heard informally from yeah. people. And I think it's even worse because you know, if you don't have something that's readily readily apparent, you don't. Ne- people won't necessarily disclose. Right. So that makes it even harder to sort of determine how they're doing. Just overall research on invisible disabilities shows that they it adds another layer of difficulty for individuals beyond just you know being disabled or having a disability in an ableist world, but if they disclose the validity of their experience is challenged because if you can't see it or it doesn't, it's not consistent, then people don't understand it. So I just read a 2018 study that says it's one of the first to sort of look at how invisibility changes your success in the job search and then, you know, staying in a job. And it affirmed other research that shows that individuals with visible disabilities are sometimes treated more positively and are accommodated more often than those with mental illnesses or other um, neurocognitive or chronic illnesses that are invisible. But for the most part, there's very little research that shows how these individuals navigate 
college and grad mm-hmm. school and professional school, let alone the the job search. So wow, wow. So what advice do you give concerning disclosure? Ultimately, it's really up to the students. It kind of puts people in between a rock and a hard place because research, that same research study showed that for those with in, invisible disabilities, disclosure can sometimes make it worse at mm. first because their experiences delegitimize or people can't mm. see it and understand it. At the same time, if they don't disclose, they run into a lot of issues as they work because they're not getting needed accommodations. So they're not retained. So the tough thing, I think, so that's the tough thing. I think yeah, it's a real balance. Yeah, it's the balance. I think we we would support whatever a student wanted to do. I think we would encourage disclosing after they get an offer and not before. Mm. And then after they disclose, you know, working on education, but before deciding to disclose or going with an offer, really doing as much legwork as they can to determine what the climate of this practice is. Mm. You know, if you are in a practice and you've talked to people and you don't see accommodations happening or you don't see individual employees being taken at, you know, who they are individually and what they need, then maybe that's not a place that you feel safe disclosing. So it, mm. it starts at the job search, leads into hopefully an, an offer at a place you like, and then disclosure, and then figuring out, you know, what you're going to need. Yeah. Can you speak to a little bit maybe about the rules um, around yeah. kind of those Americans with disabilities rules around accommodations? Absolutely. So according to the ADA rules, an applicant does not have to disclose that they have a disability. An employer cannot ask. However, if a person is hired and they know they have an accommodation, it's recommended that they disclose it. You know, ask for the accommodation at the time of employment. So we would recommend that. We would recommend disclosing when you are offered and not after because if you disclose and you ask for accommodations while you're offered, you can get things written into your contract. Mm. Whereas after that, it's really up to the practice owner to uphold what they talk about. Obviously, things will come up and hopefully you have a good relationship where you can say, listen, I'm struggling with this. Can we work something out? But we you know, really encourage at the time of offer Employers are required to provide what's called reasonable accommodation to an employee with a disability as long as it doesn't change the essential function of the job and isn't, quote, a significant hardship to the employer. Mm. So those are the rules, but there's lots to unpack there. Sure. And, you know, what does reasonable accommodation mean and how is it up to interpretation? And so, yeah, what does it what does it mean in terms of you know in terms what does that look like in practice and what is what doesn't kind of put the employer out? Well, I mean, <laughs> right, that could be pretty wide or pretty narrow, right? right. The thing is, is, is people learn how to do things, and you know they can get pretty narrow in how they like to do things, and so any change is going to be uncomfortable no matter what it is. So it may all feel like a hardship. So it's trying to figure out, you know, is it really a hardship or is it just trying to shift the status quo into creating a climate that is more welcoming and Mm -hmm. accepting and accommodating? Well, you know, I think that it's it's interesting because last year on episode 34, I did a show on technical competencies and essential standards, which some of the schools have these, you know, these competencies and standards that they expect 
perspective and applicant perspective applicants to take a look at. And, you know, if you can't do these things or if you can't meet these criteria, physical or cognitive criteria, then, you know, this probably isn't the place for you. And that also looks different in different parts of the world as well. So like in Canada, for example, they have pretty stringent technical competencies and standards at, say, the school, um, University of Saskatchewan. But they are really looking to produce large animal veterinarians there. And they're looking at some of the health and safety research that has come out. And, you know, hearing and mobility, they've determined are two of the most important standards that they want to maintain because the data, the health and safety data in in the province show that that's where most veterinarians are, you know, those are disabilities that, that the veterinarians that may have that are injured on the job. In those in that particular practice area are experiencing versus you know a lot of different kinds of interpretations around technical standards and 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 competencies here in the U.S. There are a number of schools that still have them. There are a number of schools that have abandoned them in the hopes of trying to create ha- this more inclusive space, but also thinking about how we do education differently, but also how we do practice. Yeah, as well, and and so you know whether or not a practice, a, a private practice, or a corporate practice is willing to also kind of adopt this broader, how can we do things differently? Is you know is that a is that a cultural nuance that folks um, should be looking for when they're job hunting? Yeah. yeah, and I think I think. The thing is, is when you're looking for a job, you're looking for so many different things. And sometimes, you know, if you can find the location that's right for you and the salary that's right for you to pay off your student debt and that, you know, you have to determine your own priorities. But I think that, you know, it is very important to students for culture uh, to determine what culture is, especially if they're students who might be minorities in the field, both in terms of race and gender but also even in terms of size, as strange as that might sound, but which has to do with gender as well in this case, that thinking about, you know, women are considered of smaller stature and they're not always welcome in large animal spaces because people expect that they can't physically handle it. So, which they can. So it's just, there's, there's lots of considerations and some individuals have to consider more than just salary and location and benefits when they're looking for a job. And that's because people have different identities that are, you know, Absolutely, Jenna. Thank you so much for bringing up that kind of intersectional piece, especially for folks that may have a disability, whether visible or not. They may also have other underrepresented or marginalized identities, right? And so, for example, I'm reading a book right now. Um, so here's my my reading list for folks that are interested. So I'm reading a, a really great memoir right now by the author's name is Kia Brown, and the book is called The Pretty One. She is a 20-something African-American woman with cerebral palsy. Her disabilities related to cerebral palsy are not always visible. The book is really about her experiences navigating the the world in a body that is not always accommodating (laughs) to her spirit that also happens to be female and also happens to be Black. And so, you know, she talks about these intersections and how invisible they can make her feel 
right? And so for her, she's a writer. And so, you know, looking for a job environment, physical environment has not, you know, her her job path has kind of taken her in a different direction. But for those of us with these different identities, and I mean, I include myself, I have severe dyslexia. I do a lot of audiobooks as a result. (laughs) And you you kind of figure it out, right? So, So tell me this, so many practices in veterinary medicine are really small. So there's a doc, yeah. There's a tech and maybe a couple of techs and maybe a couple of docs, but sure. but there might not be an HR person, a human resources person who's well-versed yeah. in this. And so you've got people that are just like, okay, I'm going to go Google this and here's a policy and there you go, right? So, right. <laughs> so how should job seekers and newly employed folks kind of even, I mean, so we've talked about don't don't ask for the accommodation until you have an offer and let's see if we can kind of embed that in that contract. But, you know, again, there's so much education yeah. um, that needs to happen. So, okay, so now you've got an offer, you've brought it up. What do I say to you, Jenna? <laughs> After you've offered me this job and I tell you that I struggle, I struggle sometimes to read and my handwriting is atrocious. Yeah, it's really tough. And I think it's, it's honestly kind of a, it's like a multi-pronged approach and it's not a perfect science that, you know, if you say this and ask this, then you will be accommodated. You know, I think it starts with doing your best as the job seeker to sort of feel things out and, you know, talk to people who work there and, you know, ask about their openness to, you know, whatever it is, uh, whatever it is that you need to do your best work. And then I think, you know, if I'm the employer and you say to me, you know, I have these issues, hopefully you're in a place where I'll say, okay, how can we help you with that? And then hopefully you have a sense of what to ask for. Sometimes you don't know. So I think what can really help is just talking to as many people as you can before you get to this conversation. So you can articulate, you can determine how you can articulate your disability. So, you know, really coming at it from a strengths perspective rather than a, from a deficit perspective where mm-hmm. you can say, you know, it's just like that question that they ask you, you know, what are your strengths and weaknesses for, for an interview? Almost everyone will ask that. And there's a way to answer that in a way that's empowering to you and empowers other people to see you as someone who, can grow and learn. And so I think it's practicing with other people. How will you present your disability in a way that is less deficit-based and then doing some research on your own and then talking to people who do this work. We have uh, opportunities for Ohioans with disabilities. Other states may have similar things and they can try their best to sort of talk you through what you deserve and mm-hmm. be accommodated. And then they can also sometimes go in and do trainings for employers. So that's something you right. can say is, you know, listen, this is something that I struggle with. Here's what I'm thinking might be a good accommodation. What do you think? That's a long-winded no, it thing. Is. There isn't a formula, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is unfortunate that it's not, it's not linear, right? But, right. but that's, that's the nature of dealing with people <laughs> and relationship building, right? right? And so I will say also as 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 someone 
with a learning disability and as, as a parent to a kid with severe <laughs> ADHD, which I, I will admit my own biases. I didn't think that it was as serious a thing until it was in my house. Yeah. <laughs> and, but she's amazing in, in some areas of, of productivity and struggles in others, right? And it, again, yeah. that's not linear either. So I do think that it's really important for job seekers to think critically about how you advocate for yourselves. Because a lot of times to get this far, you've already figured out a lot of ways to navigate these spaces on your own. And so really it's a matter of sometimes sharing the tools with the people that you work with and for to show them like, this isn't a big deal, but this is the type of software that I use that helps me do X. And then software is constantly evolving. So, you know, we used to only have maybe one like Dragon Speak software for, you know, dictation Mm -hmm. um, through Word, but now dictation is automatically text-to-speak or speak-to-text is already embedded in a lot of programs for those of us... (laughs) (laughs) where, you know, with some neurocognitive challenges. And so that can be a really great way of handling things. If you need transcription, there are programs, there are things out there like Fiverr, where transcription is really doesn't, is not nearly as expensive as it once was. And so, you know, being able to share some of these things with potential employers, not only shows you to be a, a kind of problem solver, but sometimes some of these these tools and techniques actually do turn into strengths and in that you're sharing new stuff with folks right. that they can integrate into you know their workspaces in really different and creative ways to increase productivity right because a lack of knowledge on the employer's part is not always you know not it doesn't always mean that they desire to not learn the reality is is that if you disclose their first reaction might be oh I don't know what to do with that. And so as hard as it is, and as it seems a little bit unfair to put the onus on the person who is trying to navigate ableism when they're just trying to, you know, live their lives. I think I would hope that you would be in a space where even if an employer does not at all know how to help you, that you can get some tools to advocate for yourself. Like you said, where you can say, you know, there's this software, there's this. So that way you are taking the fear away from the employer, which is where a lot of bias stems from. It's just mm-hmm. fear and lack of knowledge. And if you can just take that fear away from them, then I think you can move forward as sort of a partnership. But I think, you know, it, it makes me wish that there was some sort of resource out there for, for vet students that say, you know, these are various different accommodations that you can ask for if you... You know, as I hadn't heard about some of that transcription, you know, those transcription services. So, yeah, transcription now is, is, I mean, <laughs> even five, six years ago, it was so expensive, but now, you know, it's a lot more accessible. It's integrated into so many different word processing softwares yeah. and all kinds of things. And so, you know, those are, can be really great selling points. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about, you know, what happens when the interview goes wrong. <laughs> Yeah. Particularly if you have a visual disability, you know, something that is pretty obvious. So, and, you know, we talk a lot about communication and communication 
isn't always verbal, right? And so it's almost um, all nonverbal. <laughs> it's almost all nonverbal. <laughs> Like so much is nonverbal. Yeah. So, you know, what should job seekers consider as they interview and things go wrong? So they get a bad vibe, potential employer can't stop looking at the crutches or the wheelchair or the hearing aid device. That's such a tough spot to be in. And, you know, we, we hope that our students will experience that. But the reality is if it's not in an interview, it might be somewhere else. And we hope to equip our students and train our students to trust that vibe. You know, there's a reason why we don't for professional development. And when we're talking about um, career services, there's a reason that we don't just teach the hard skills of here's a resume, here's this, here's how you answer questions. When we teach students about exploration and we coach them through those things, we ask them, you know, what do you want? What are your values? Because if you find a workplace that aligns with your values, you're going to be more satisfied. So we really try to have conversations with students. Maybe they're not specifically, you know, what goes, what happens if the interview goes wrong, but we trust students to very seriously consider climate. And that's really hard to tell, but that's why we really encourage students doing shadowing, days of shadowing, observing people around them, talking to people who work there. So you can sort of determine, you know, what is the climate here? So it's really important we try to tell students that that is as important, that's an as important part of the job search as, you know, on paper, what are they offering you? Mm -hmm. We teach them to trust that vibe. You know, if you are in a situation and you don't feel respected or you feel like someone is looking at you in a way that makes you feel, that belittles you or just makes you not feel great. Fortunately, we are in a position right now where the, you know, the, it's, it's a good, there's yeah. lots of jobs out. The market, the, the market, market is such that good. you can let that opportunity go. Yeah. <laughs> recognize that it's not always going to be like that. People don't right. always have the luxury of choosing what options they have because sometimes you need a job. Right now, they, students have the luxury. And so I highly, you know, suggest that if you, if you get a bad feeling or bad vibe, that's not the place for you because you deserve to be in a place where you feel valued. I recognize it's easier said than done when, you know, it's 2008 and vets are taking vet tech positions because there's not a lot of positions. But I think if you really want to be in a position and you want to be satisfied and not hate your life, then, (laughs) you know, it's, you should trust those initial feelings because if you're getting that in an initial interview, it's, it's It's something that permeates that. Yeah. It's permeable. Yeah, it's permeating yeah. that that environment. Right, because interviews, people are usually on their best behavior. They're trying. So if that's coming through there, it's not a great sign. Yeah, that's yeah. That's a big old red flag. Yeah, that's a big flag. And again, you know, you've. I think that it's really interesting because you know, there's so much that happens during those clinical rotations and clinical training throughout the DVM program, and you're being exposed to certainly folks that are in the teaching hospital. If you're at a school with a um, on-ground teaching hospital, or you're going out and some of the distributive models to a number of different kinds of places, you know, I think it's, it's, you're certainly learning and practicing the medicine, but it's a great opportunity to also kind of keep a running list of things that you like and don't like about 
work environments. I mean, and this is for everyone, but especially if you are, you know, someone who has marginalized identity or disability or otherwise underrepresented in, in the veterinary profession, that this is really, really critical to also think about what you're learning about the types of work environments that you like and don't like and can thrive in or, you know, the difference between surviving and thriving. Right. right. So, right. you know, those are, those are, it's a great opportunity to, to think beyond just kind of the hands-on stuff, but really kind of what does the mentoring look like? What is the environment? Right. How do people talk to each other? How right. do they talk to you? All of those kinds of things are, are things that you should be right. kind of keying and plugging into. So that's what we really encourage students to ask. You know, don't just ask, you know, what does the schedule look like? I mean, those are not the kind of questions you actually want to ask when you're on the interview. You want to ask, you know, what does communication look like? What does it look like when I make a mistake? What mm. does it look like? Those are your best way to get at sort of what that culture is. And it's not perfect because so much of culture is is so under the surface. But mm. the vet can is, is thinking about um, maybe putting together some, maybe a, a list or a guide of some questions that you can ask that can help you sort of determine a little bit better whether an externship role or a job role uh, is going to be a good fit for you just in terms of climate. Yeah. Well, we look forward to that resource. (laughs) (laughs) It'll just be our best approximation because it's... it's Sure. But I think uh, the questions that we ask are the biggest tool because sometimes you can get certain things, you can learn certain things that people might not even realize are going on by by asking those questions. How do people treat each other? How do people communicate? So Mm -hmm. how can we coach employers? So we've talked a lot about the job seekers, but what about the hiring folks? Like, so, you know, you're out there, you're looking for, you need, you, you need a couple of new veterinarians, practices growing, things, business is good. You're in the market. How do we coach employers to get past whatever their biases and fears are about hiring someone with a visible or invisible disability? So I think it goes back to what you said before. You know, these students, when they're getting in, if they've successfully gone through the DVM, they've already jumped through hoops and done whatever they can to get through that experience. So I think just reminding employers that these students persisted through vet school, which is no small feat. So they are capable and ultimately they are capable of adding value. And ultimately employers are looking for capable people, people who can do medicine, but also people who have what some people call soft skills, but we call professional skills. You know, people say, I can teach you the medicine. I can't teach you to be good with customers. I can't teach you to be a good person. So it's really about those things. So I think that employers already use a contract to create a partnership with an employer and and accommodate them, even though it's not in the accommodations that we normally think. So is it much more of a stretch to make some employee benefits a little bit more like accommodations Mm. for a certain person so that they are able to do their best work? So I think it's really just shifting a mindset to, you know, it's an investment in talent. These students have talent. They got through vet school. So if you can accommodate that capable vet, they're going to do good work for you and they're going to be loyal. And there's actually research that 
leaders who think about their employees as individuals and not just as an employer in a sea of employers or employee in a sea of employees, they actually are able to increase productivity in those individuals in their place of work. So it behooves people to consider individual needs. Yeah, absolutely. I would also add that, you know, I guess here's my, here's my, 10 cents cuz i've got <laughs> two nickels here. So so one you know i just have to underscore the persistence of these individuals as well as you know again folks that are coming from a place where they're scaling so many barriers these folks know how to problem solve. Yeah. <laughs> they got you. <laughs> Their skills are on lock for problem solving. <laughs> Right. They know how to scale mountains, (laughs) you know, because they've made it this far. And I think that we're always, I think, so inclined to look at what folks can't do versus what they've already done. Right. Right. And so there's a whole body of evidence that these folks are bringing to you already. So, you know, don't overlook that. The other thing that I kind of want folks to to also think about is are the principles around universal design, right? And so universal design is a set of principles that really are about learning, but they are really relevant to the way that we work more broadly. And so there's seven principles. I'll kind of run through them really, really quick. If you want more information about universal design, hit your friend Google, <laughs> Dr. Google. It'll come up right away. Um, There's some really great resources there. This is also a big thing internationally. So definitely check it out. So the first principle, equitable use. The second principle, flexibility in use. Third principle, simple and intuitive use. Principle four, perceptible information. Principle five, tolerance for error. So again, we talked a little bit about kind of how, what happens when we make mistakes, right? Principle six, low physical effort. And so this is again about how we do things differently that is good for everyone. And then the last principle is size and space for approach and use. And the principles of universal design are relevant in terms of architecture, they're relevant in terms of the way we think about physical space, but also that day-to-day work. And so, for example, a few years ago, Texas A&M graduated a student who was in a wheelchair. And, and, you know, during that student's matriculation, I kind of visited with the leadership team and, and we talked a lot about how, what, what did they do related to accommodations? And some of the things that the educators learned in that experience, because it was the first time they'd educated a student in the professional program in a wheelchair, was, hey, you know what? We could be making much, much better use of our certified vet techs and other paraprofessional staff. Why does the DVM have to walk the horse around? to assess gate. Why doesn't someone else walk the horse and the veterinarian stand there and observe? Because that's what they're going to be doing. Why do we require them to also move? Why are all of these people moving when only one person needs to move the horse, right? And so they really thought about how they could do things differently. And it wasn't, you know, the end result wasn't just beneficial to the student in the wheelchair, but it radically changed the way that they thought about how they do 
air quote, do the DVM program, right? And how they're teaching students to use paraprofessionals, how they're teaching students to do observational skills and clinical skills and all of these different kinds of things in a way that is more team-based, more integrative, and just results in better professionals. And so definitely check out folks that are listening, check out the principles for universal design and how they might be integrated not only into your physical workspace, but kind of thinking about how some of these principles might mean for the way that you approach um, hiring, the way that you approach management, and the way that you approach assessment as well in terms of job performance. So yeah, there's my 10 cents. That was probably a quarter (laughs) of too much. Um, Anyway, (laughs) so last question for you, uh, Jenna, what big issues related to disabilities kind of in the workplace do you see on the horizon? What's, What's coming? So I think what's coming is already here (laughs) and just continues to be issues. So I think lack of awareness about invisible disabilities, things you can't see but are chronic. So thinking about flare-ups, you know, some, some invisible disabilities are not consistent, but they are chronic. And so you may wake up one day uh, with lupus and be fine. And then you may wake up the next day and you can't walk. So what does that So can someone with chronic pain or a chronic disease like this do this work? Can they be accommodated? Will they be accommodated? So I think there's that physical invisible aspect. And then, of course, there is the aspect of, you know, are we doing enough to accommodate or how can we do more to accommodate students with other invisible disabilities? I think we really still need to talk about mental health issues as well. Um, that's something that has been an issue, is an issue, and hasn't stopped being an issue. So I think that's something that we still need to do a lot of work on uh, and think about because similarly, that's not something that is, that's something that's more stigmatized than perhaps a physical disability in some ways and in other ways not. And so I think we just need to know more about that and we need to to have more education for everybody about that. And then I think something that could really help is just something national for vet students so they can have a support network. Mm. Because I think, you know, we learn these things from anecdotal evidence and that's anecdotal evidence based on, you know, developing rapport with a student and then disclosing to us. Mm. I'm sure there are so many more people who are struggling and don't talk about it. And I think having this sense that like you can be a vet and have these issues. And here are people nationally who are doing this kind of a mentorship thing, or just to see, you know, that other people are out there who have been accommodated and can be accommodated, I think would just be such a a force of empowerment for the group and would just move, I think, the whole field forward. Sure. It's great advice. It's great advice. I'm like, can someone create this? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think the big issues are are here already and yeah. just, you know things to keep working on. Yeah. So we'll keep plugging away then. But yeah, definitely, you know, I think that the other thing is that we 
always act like those are other people, but those other people are friends, our family, our colleagues. Yeah. And, you know, I tell people all the time, like, if you just shake your family tree of friends and family, like, we all know someone (laughs) in our lives, right? And so, you know, kind of practice some of that empathy that sometimes we are, you know, able to practice in our social and familial circles. Let's kind of bring a little bit of that into the workspace as well. Absolutely. And so if you're interested in continuing this conversation about disabilities in the job hunt and in the workplace, please be sure to drop a comment on our podcast Facebook page at AVMC Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Be sure to like and listen to all kinds of background info for that. But you can also tweet me at LM underscore Greenhill on Twitter and definitely engage and and, and let's talk more about these issues. So just Jenna, thank you so much for this conversation. Yeah, it's been it's been fun and really enlightening. And so folks, yeah, build those connections, network, educate yourselves, practice empathy, and consider Googling universal design. Those are some of your big takeaways yes. Yes. <laughs> for today. And so with that, we'll wrap another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on air. Again, please be sure to follow us and like us on Facebook. And again, you can follow me on Twitter at LM underscore Greenhill, where I hang out and talk about all kinds of things, academic and veterinary medicine. Be sure to check out the pre- those previous episodes I referenced in the show episode, I believe it was 35, which was technical competencies and episode, I believe it was 45 on disabilities in the, the workplace. So with that, Jenna, thank you so much. Thank and you. we will all see you next time. 